Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the TV Pilot's License Flight Number 48 with service to Kitchen Stadium. We ask that you please fasten your headphones at this time, secure your podcasting device, and remember, today's secret ingredient is... Biscoff cookies! <laughs> Welcome to the TV Pilot's License. My name is Jeff Curvis, joined by Rich Inman and Max Singer. How you boys doing today? Wow. Oh, uh, I like Wazid. I like Wazid. Let's go. <laughs> uh, Jeff, I'm, I'm so good. I'm actually going to be cooking a six-course meal while we record this whole podcast. My secret ingredient this week is Adderall. Oh my god. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for those who aren't familiar with Kitchen Stadium or uh, with Ale Cuisine, this week we are diving into the original Iron Chef. Um, But before we dive in too deep, uh, Max, do you mind telling folks what this podcast is all about? So here at TV Pilots License, we analyze the pilot episodes of some of TV's most famous or in some cases infamous shows. We learn about how these programs came to be. If they're effective pilots and they just want to watch more and if they can be made today, go back and listen to our older episodes from wherever you get your podcasts from. Check us out on YouTube to enjoy our smiling faces. And if it is your first time flying with us, then welcome aboard, boy. (laughs) (laughs) You're in for a treat. And Rich... Speaking of treats, what is your question of the week? Oh, boy. Uh, So I know this is something that we talked a lot about in college, that we wanted to do a Iron Chef challenge of all the guys in in our senior year house and just try to see what we could come up with for like Fritos or 7-Eleven frozen burritos or something like that. Um, I want to know what is a fun ingredient you think you could nail on Iron Chef? What is the one ingredient when they lift the veil what are you getting? What would your eyes grow as big as dinner plates for? Ooh, Ooh are we doing a dessert course? Oh, that uh, is a solid question. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, I am. I'm gonna go oyster. Ooh, okay. I'm gonna go oyster. Um, okay. I think that there's a lot that you could do with uh, the meat. The brine. Um, I think there's definitely uh, like delicate and like fried and savory ingredients too. I've also had a few different like uh, stout beers over time that have had like oyster shells steeped into it for like a weird kind of like briny sweetness to stout beer. So I think there's like some fun things to uh, to use at the ice cream machine. Although as a cooking show fan, I know you never use the ice cream machine, but I'm gonna go oysters. <laughs> hey, not not to spoil anything, but we got the ice cream in this pilot episode. I'm we got fish ice cream, baby. Not to spoil anything, but my oysters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What about you, Jeff? Um, I think I'd have to go with Japanese sweet potatoes. Um, oh, I mm. absolutely am in love with Japanese sweet potatoes. Yakimo is like one of the greatest desserts of all time. Um, and if you've never done it, just put an oven as high as you can, wrap some Japanese sweet potatoes up in tinfoil and leave them in for an hour. And then it is a delectable treat. Jeff like, spent his entire hour in kitchen stadium, roasting a potato. <laughs> he put it in the microwave for 58 minutes and then, and then uh, tried to cool it off. He tried to blow on it for two minutes. Um, but no, I think there's so many things to do. Like I'd have to do like a Japanese sweet potato, potato latke um you know maybe i would have a bagel randomly appear 
Uh, you know, who knows? But I think that it would be a delight and it's something that it's one of my favorite ingredients to use. Rich, I'm curious, what about yourself? Well, you guys both went with individual ingredients that you could turn into so many different dishes. I went the opposite route and I'm going with the take five candy bar because <laughs> you have you get, like so five many... ingredients. Yeah, it's, you get five things. You get chocolate, you get pretzel, you get peanut butter, you get actual peanuts and you get caramel. You can do anything you want with all of those. I feel like that would be like maybe one of the funnest things to, to do on, on Iron Chef. And yeah, as you can tell, I thought about this question a lot literally one of the greatest candy bars of all time is the take five and we were all alive when it was invented we are so old god i can't wow. believe rich brought rich brought saber metrics to kitchen stadium he figured out how to like game the system efficiently that won't be that won't be the last time we, we throw that into the stats next stats are ruining the game stats are ruining the game well we already have a pitch clock Thank you so much for that question of the week. Uh, but before we talk even more about Iron Chef, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, passengers, this is Captain Jeff. When I'm not watching TV shows or terrible TV pilots, you'll find me on Spotify listening to new and exciting artists. One album that I've been recently streaming is this week's sponsor, James Keith Norman and Beck Norman's album, Us Upon Sleep. If you are looking for something calm and relaxing that is great for meditation or even a walk, I would highly recommend it. So after the episode, make sure to search Us Upon Sleep on Spotify or any of your favorite streaming services. Now, back to the episode. Welcome back. Let's talk a little bit more about Iron Chef, and let's start off with a synopsis. Chefs from all over the world come to Kitchen Stadium to do culinary battle with one of the chairman Kaga's Iron Chefs. Very simple. I think that actually does a fantastic job of giving us a little bit of exposition about what we're going to dive into today. But Max, there's a lot more that went into this show, and I'd love to hear from you what that is. Yes. If memory serves me right, we're talking about the premiere of Iron <laughs> Chef today on TV Pilot's License. Uh, but a little bit of context for the folks listening at home, we're not going to be talking about the original 1993 premiere, but rather the first episode, which aired in the United States on Food Network on July 9th, 1999, which is the Red Snapper Battle. So originally produced by Fuji Television and premiering in Japan on October 10th, 1993, uh, the series began to appear in some independent TV stations around the U.S. in 1997 and became this mysterious cult hit that built a buzz by word of mouth and early internet. These episodes originally aired with subtitles before being pulled due to Japanese copy, copyright laws. The show was then picked up by Food Network in 1999 and began premiering in the States with what's actually the middle of season four of the Japanese series. Mm. Food Network aired it from season four all the way to the end of season seven, then started to show some of the specials and spinoffs they did. They did a few profile episodes of the Iron Chefs themselves and then began to show seasons two three, and the other half of four out of order. The original Japanese season one never aired in the United States. If you do want to do a deep dive, it is certainly available in bootlegs and like web torrents and things like that. But here at TVPL, we obviously want our audiences to be encouraged to watch these shows. Uh, this program is streaming on a 
couple of different platforms that we're not going to give free clout to. So uh, go and find it, though, and you could watch Red Snapper Battle, the first American episode. Uh, a big part of the allure of Iron Chef is, of course, the wild flamboyance of Chairman Kaga, uh, who is portrayed by actor Takeshi Kaga, who had an extensive career in Japanese film, as well as an illustrious career in the Japanese musical theater scene. Uh, Kaga starred in the Japanese productions of so many hit musicals, including Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, Tony wow. and West Side Story, Dr. Jekyll and Jekyll and Hyde, uh, Mac the Knife and Three Penny Opera, and Jean Valjean and Les Miserables, even taking part in Royal Albert Hall's 10th anniversary special in 1995, where Valjeans from 17 different countries joined together on stage to sing. Uh, for uh, people who are also uh, cartoon and anime fans, he voiced the villain in the original Japanese version of Pokemon the Movie 2000. What? Iron Chef also has this fascinating obsession with French literature. The opening title card to every episode is a quote from Jean-Athelme Brillant Savarin, an 18th century writer considered the first food writer. Uh, the quote, if memory serves me right, that Chairman Kaga began his narrations with is from the 19th century French poet Arthur Rimbaud. And of course, the battle cry for everything in Kitchen Stadium, Ally Cuisine. Uh, what this Francophile obsession is, I don't know. It's incredibly dramatic, though. There's such a fun <laughs> flair. This episode is unlike anything we've done on this podcast before, so I'm really excited. I hope you enjoy. And uh, LA Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so That was beautiful. Let's dive into Iron Chef. And Max, you talked about those quotes. Um, our title card this episode just says, Tell me what you eat. And I'll tell you what you are. And that seems to be the beginning of this storytelling that we're given of our of Kaga and the quest to build Kitchen Stadium and build this arena of what is top chefs in their game top chefs is a different tv show the greatest <laughs> chefs within their game uh the most ironous amongst... chefs <laughs> they're so full of iron they're so <laughs> healthy so much beef uh and they're competing against each other in this wild tv show but this day is unlike any other and max we were talking about this before we started filming this almost does seem like a pilot because we have a new chef who is joining these established set chefs. Um, Rich, do you mind telling me what are the different specialties that these chefs might have uh, amongst <laughs> within Kitchen Stadium? Well, it looks like there's only three. And I was honestly very, having never watched the Japanese version of this before, I was honestly very shocked. I was not expecting this to be the three types of cuisine that you could really like battle about, but you got uh, iron chef Japanese, which is uh, obviously uh, specializing in Japanese cuisine. Um, you have iron chef Italian, which uh, was really not expecting. That was way out of left field for me. And then iron chef French, um, I guess French just being their tribute to, the birthplace of like Western cooking techniques and stuff oh, like that. And uh, Iron Chef Chinese. Oh, and Iron Chef Chinese. Yes. All for and, it. And we didn't just get 
these four people who said that they were specialists within this cuisine, we got four specialized, unique costumes that these <laughs> chefs had Boy, to howdy. wear while cooking in a very chaotic kitchen yeah. <laughs> at all of these times. But they also continue to build this narrative as we have a new chef who is working. And this name might sound a little bit familiar for our audience, but Max, do you mind telling folks a little bit about the new chef uh, that we get to hear about today? Yeah, it's funny. This is such a pilot because like, it begins with uh, the, the first day of the new Japanese Iron Chef uh, who, of course, is Masahiro Morimoto, who's become this just like massive celebrity chef in the years since. At the time, though, and I actually don't think I realized this, he was running uh, the restaurant Nobu, which now is also just like an empire. But back in the day, it was just like one sushi restaurant in Tribeca co-owned by by Bobby D, Robert De Niro himself. And I'm laughing so hard at all of the celebrity like star photos they show with morimoto here i had to jot them down because they show they show gina davis whitney houston and sylvester stallone Stallone. and then a a copy of the 1998 zagat book um but but yeah it's 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 a pilot it's the first day of someone on the job and there's a huge exposition dump jeff you kind of touched upon this but do you mind if i read the exposition go for it Five years ago, a man's fantasy became a reality in a form never seen before. Kitchen Stadium, a giant cooking arena. The motivation for spending his fortune, again, it's an actor playing this character, (laughs) to create Kitchen Stadium was to encounter new original cuisines, which could be called true artistic creations. To realize his dream, he secretly started choosing the top chefs of various styles of cooking, and he named his men the Iron Chefs, the invincible men of culinary skills. I love this. Wow. Uh, Kitchen Stadium is the arena where Iron Chefs await the challenges of master chefs from around the world. Both the Iron Chef and Challenger have one hour to tackle the theme ingredient of the day. Using all their senses, skill, creativity, they are to prepare artistic dishes never tasted before. And if ever a challenger wins over the Iron Chef, he or she will gain the people's ovation and fame forever. Every battle, reputations are on the line in Kitchen Stadium, where master chefs pit their artistic creations against each other. What inspiration does today's challenger bring? And how will the Iron Chef fight back? The heat will be on. (laughs) That's so dramatic. I love this guy. This is unlike any show that we've watched right because this is our first true game show we've done but also in the sense of the amount of exposition that this show is responsible for giving us at the beginning of the episode of understanding who our competitor is yep. as well as who Morimoto did you is. did you notice what the newspaper headline said when they show up sitting on the stoop reading the paper this is the new york post no i did not <laughs> It's an issue of the New York Post, and it says, let him come home. Oh, my God. Is that, wait, hold on. Is that a reference to Elian Gonzalez? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, I'm serious. Oh, I I assumed it was them implying that Morimoto gets to go home to Japan to battle at Kitchen Stadium. No, he's reading a New York Post, and I think it's about Elian Gonzalez, because it's what, 1996? 1998? Oh, man, I thought there was deeper artistic meaning in this. (laughs) Yeah, you wish. You wish. <laughs> that's that's absolutely bonkers. Um, I think that one of the things that's great about this 
episode though is we do really paint whom this competitor is and the qualifications of this human being right just learning he's been i if i am reading my notes correctly working at the same restaurant for basically 20 years Mm -hmm. working his way into becoming the head chef of this restaurant and yeah jeff is referring to uh chef yukio hiroyama our competitor today uh who runs a restaurant called hanyate in yokohama and i genuinely you know you even though we have not talked about game shows before there is a certain level of storytelling that the show is responsible for doing and i i have to say at least for this beginning part, meeting Morimoto, meeting our competitor, I am, I'm in. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to see them battle it out. I don't know if they were able to get this effect by using the dub to their advantage, but after they give uh, Hiroyama's whole background and they give the montage of like his cooking and his culinary prowess and his 20s experience, they ask him like if he's ready to go and he says, I'm going to give it my best using all my years of experience. Like it's so nonchalant. It's such like an underdog, <laughs> like, well, I'm going to go out there and give it my best shot. I mean, there, that is really the, it seems like the over uh, like the overarching uh, attempt of iron chef in general, or really any cooking competition show where it's not just enough to have the, someone make a beautiful meal on TV. You know, it's like, you're, you're having someone deal with scarcity and creativity and stuff like that. But you're also, I mean, I, I, they couldn't have picked a better quote for the title card of this episode. It's like, tell, uh, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. Cause like that is, you are what you eat. Yeah. You are what you eat. Um, <laughs> which is probably has to be like the worst American paraphrasing of all time. But there is, uh, I mean, they really do try to establish like, who this person is based on their techniques, based on their creative choices. And you're going to see that like throughout this episode and referenced like constantly by the host, by the, by the judges and everything, every single bit of who this person was before they entered kitchen, uh, wait, kitchen kitchen stadium. stadium. Thank you. I was like, kitchen arena. That doesn't sound right. Um, (laughs) every, every little bit of that person's personality before they come in has, is going to be, dissected by these people who are watching them cook frantically for an hour um i I mean i think they do a really terrific job of this and and i think that is what makes this show so like i I think it just the the cold popularity in the u.s we love a story we love an underdog story we love people who are extremely skilled we love conflict and and all that sort of stuff and and this really brings a lot of drama in addition to of course, this guy's a musical theater guy, the the flamboyant and and artistic and and shout from the rooftops nature of the host. So let's talk a little bit about for those who are not familiar with Iron Chef, let's set the rules of this game out. So in this instance, your competitor is coming into Kitchen Stadium. They hypothetically get the choice of any of the chefs to pick from. Uh, as we said, there is a Chinese specialist, there's a Japanese specialist, Italian, and French. So four chefs. Based off of whom they pick, there is then a secret re- ingredient that is revealed that has to be in each of their courses. Um, if you're familiar with the American version of this show, it was established that there were five courses no matter what the ingredient would be. 
But in this series, um, it is really up to the person how many courses they want to make, which I think is a nice touch. But here's the key fact. They only get an hour. So Mm -hmm. you could make 10 courses if you really wanted to, but you still get an hour just like everyone else. Do you know With, since you guys have oh, watched since you guys have watched this probably a little bit more than I have like do you know what is the fewest number of dishes that someone's attempted for this show for this format and what's the most I'm, I'm like can, can you make one dish I'm and like one has one, to share it it's a big soup dish. <laughs> it's a big soup <laughs> and, yeah I in my research I actually did not see if there was any statistics about that I have some more statistics we're going to be talking about uh, which chef you want on your fantasy Iron Chef League uh, <laughs> in a little bit. But <laughs> Welcome back the... to All Fantasy Everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What did uh, you guys think of the chef army? Like, we ended the cold open, and there was just, yeah, like, why did they do 100, that? <laughs> 100 men in white chef's coats standing before Chairman Kaga. Wait, Those so... were all EPs, and they were all very <laughs> upset that they had to be there. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that, like, they're essentially army of sous chefs and assistant chefs and stuff like that or like are those the people who are who are helping out no there's a my, chairman congas man yeah I, my, <laughs> he's, so really, like, he's leading a militia a couple of other things that i want to make sure we tell the audience is this is filmed in front of a live studio audience as well as there are four judges including the chairman um so there's five judges in case you're curious, only one of these judges has any background or expertise within cooking, which is absolutely bonkers. Uh, the rest of them are celebrities, people that you want to see enjoy food and eat food, mainly actors, actresses. I think there was a songwriter in this episode. Uh, and then as far as Kitchen Stadium goes, it has everything you need, but it was very Boy, much howdy. built to have five cameramen running around with so many wires. Oh, man. That stressed so me out scared. so much. I was so scared of the wires. Um, but with those rules set, let's talk about the episode that we watched. Um, and the reveal. Who, who would like to reveal what our secret ingredient was in this episode? Max, do you want to do the voice? Not doing the voice. Do the voice. Do the voice. Do, do the, the voice. voice. Do, do the, the voice. voice. <laughs> do I get in trouble if I do the voice? I don't know. If you do the dubbed voice, I think you're okay. It is It is the dubbed voice. Okay, so all right. Fine. It's an American yes. dubbed voice. Red Snapper. There you go. That was, that was very good. Uh, so instantly, we're in. And... Not only do we watch these chefs starting to prepare these dishes, but we get commentary from so many different figures. What were mm. your feelings, Rich, when you heard not only our commentators, but we had a guy who was like our man on the street, and we also had the ju- we had the Iron Chefs who weren't chosen, as well as a couple of retired Iron Chefs, and then we had the judges as well, and you had to make your way through all of these different voices at the same time yeah not not to make too bad of a pun but that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen and uh <laughs> <laughs> hey i did it no no um yeah no that that is a it for me like if it wasn't 
I, I have to imagine they started eliminating some of these extraneous voices at a certain amount of time, at a certain period. I don't know, man. But this like, episode's the middle of season four of the Japanese. Yeah, we're in edit. season four. We have yeah. our formula oh, shit, down, right. and people want to hear their favorite yeah. actors and actresses talking about how they prefer their sashimi of Red Snapper. <laughs> Yeah, this is, it seemed like a lot of people weighing in just because they needed to kill 60 minutes of airtime. But like the people I wanted to hear from most were obviously the former Iron Chefs and stuff like that. Uh, the person on the ground, but my God, what a chaotic scene go uh, down at the bottom there. And there's also, I believe someone made the comment of um, like, I, I'm really thankful that we're up here and they can't really hear us because they were talking about like their background and like, what what made them nervous about like their chances during that day or something like that and also um i think some people made some cracks at new york which was very funny to me if, I, I really love that they're just like shitting on, on on him leaving for new york if there was one theme of this episode it's that i am 99 percent sure the only thing they knew about morimoto is that he was a big chef <laughs> in new york and yeah. like everything he did even when he wasn't making things that were quote unquote New York centric, that's New York for you. Like everyone yeah, in New York. Yeah, this, the, this the, dude's about to rack up Michelin the stars. The rep is that he's kind of this like young hotshot. They make a crack about how his skills shine brighter than the diamonds in his ears, which I thought was a very funny line. Um, <laughs> at one point, like in the thick of battle, Morimoto just slams a can of Coca Cola and there's the dub. He's such a New Yorker, so unique. <laughs> <laughs> and there one of the um one of the judges that was, made a, a, that was just a vocal warm-up one of the judges also made this comment i think this was the songwriter who was talking about like how he was a fan of like frank sinatra and like classic music but uh from morimoto he's expecting prince or he's expecting oh. uh chumba wumba yeah he says is... i like i like it's it's when he's judging the challenger he says i like unique stuff like puff daddy and chumba wumba but these dishes are frank sinatra <laughs> as to say like frank sinatra dishes are, like timeless and always great and always like always work oh. and like the other there was one other like comment chumba wumba. so like as we make our way through i think that even though we do have all of these voices coming in, one of the things that you have to give credit to the director that was on set is making sure that we have some form of a story that is being put together of seeing these dishes being crafted in not true real time, but like a slightly sped up version of real time. I mean, pretty close. Pretty close. There, I, I do want to ask too. Uh, I'm just like using you guys as my my cooking competition show uh, uh, savants here. Uh, a lot of the ingredients that they were using, I remember there was something that uh, that was like salt cured from this. Uh, they was someone, one of the contestants used like a salt cured red snapper, and I'm like, you can't do that in 20 minutes. Like you can't salt cure something in 20 minutes. So is how much prep time? is involved in like actually coming up with this stuff. So if we're to take a peek behind the curtain, hypothetically, <laughs> and if you don't want to know, feel free it. to uh, hit that fast forward. Yeah, button a few yeah, times. Fast forward <laughs> like 30 seconds, because I'm going to be really quick. Normally chefs will get about 30 minutes to prep with their team, a menu that they would like to put together for the entire thing. Okay. During that 30 minutes, they have to give a producer a list of ingredients that might not be had so that producer can run out as quickly as they can to the gigantic pantries that they'll have 
or find anything specialized. The chefs are yeah. also sometimes warned of bringing specialty things like New York newspapers uh, with them to be able to be used on the show. Um, and if you skipped ahead, welcome back. Uh, so, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit in addition of like when you were seeing some of these dishes specifically to this episode, were there any that you were like, wait a minute, that looks fantastic. Or were there things that you were just like, I might not be eating that, or I might be upset that I have to eat that today. <laughs> For me, I'm like I'm I'm slamming everything. This this uh, both contestants make such an insane like meal. There is one dish that Morimoto made that combined uh, foie gras, uni, sweet shrimp, and like uh, and the cured red snapper sashimi, and like that would blow my mind how amazing that would taste. But also. If you serve that at Nobu, that dish alone would cost six hundred dollars. There's no, there's no getting around that. I'm like, this is what this is what he's like when he just has zero like concern for budget. I love that. Max, what about you? I, I'm just reminded of this like early mid '90s time in like the culinary world where like the fanciest dishes were like Wolfgang Puck putting smoked salmon on a pizza and like calling it a mm -hmm. delicacy at Spago. Or in this case, like when Morimoto's doing like a soup with snapper paste on a bagel or like the potato chip with caviar. It's like these things that feel so high low are just such an example of like mid to late nineties cooking to me that it's like, it's blowing people's minds and now they feel so ubiquitous <laughs> to us. Um, but yeah, I, I would I I would eat everything. Duh. Yeah, <laughs> it all looks really freaking yeah, this good. This is insane. And I think <laughs> I think one of the things that I love about this show is it very much is an example of how the sausage gets made. Like we are, if we're going back in time to when this show premiered. Wait, did I did I miss a dish? Did one of them make sausage? No, unfortunately, no God red snapper sausage. Uh, but. <laughs> In this instance, I really love seeing how chaotic this kitchen stadium is to get all of these dishes done in this hour mm -hmm. of time and in these constraints. Because at this point in time, if you go on to any of these food shows that you see, like let's just say Emerald Lagasse, right? Watching Emerald Lagasse cook Cajun food is a beautiful thing to watch. It's very like mm -hmm. it looks like poetry. When you're watching Morimoto slam the shit out of a red snapper head so that he can break it in half, like it is, it takes you aback. But then when you see the finished product of some of these dishes, you're like, yeah, through this violence comes something so beautiful that then gets to be enjoyed like art. Well, well to your point, Jeff, I think what makes Iron Chef like this phenomenon, like we hadn't seen shows like this at this point in time, is that. Iron Chef creates that feeling of the all is lost moment. It creates that moment where like your hero has to climb out and get everything done before the buzzer rings. And I, I, I can't recall again, like shows doing that with cooking at this time. Again, now you turn on, you know, any channel and there's 17 different uh, you know, gimmicky culinary competitions. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those later, but it's like what, what Iron Shift did is 
so wholly original because it tells a story throughout the episode, like those same beats that you would have in any script pilot or otherwise Iron Chef hits. And that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Like someone had to be the first one to come up with that idea and to do that. And I thank them for it. I mean, I, th I think, Oh, go ahead, Rich. Go ahead. I think what I really love about one cohesive ingredient and why I like to choose to take five candy bar for my, uh, for my <laughs> challenge. <laughs> that's a callback. That's a callback, baby. Um, I love that I can watch a skilled chef cook literally every single part of a fish in a different manner, in a way that I wouldn't expect stuff that could possibly just be tossed in a broth or something like that. They have found a way to, to, I mean, the, using, part of a red snapper to, as like a uh as like an infusion for sake sounds unbelievable like they're they're using the spinal cord they're mm -hmm. using the eyes they're using yeah i mean it's just like apologies to any of our vegan listeners but uh i mean it really just is insane watching someone with that level of skill and i would watch any type of show with that level of skill i would like the glass blowing shows on netflix or like you know, any of the other ones where you see someone who has honed a craft for decades, like just seeing them in their element and watching what they can do with a scarcity of ingredients. It is really, really impressive. So one of the things that first, I think that one of the themes that we're finding is people love a David and Goliath story, right? People mm -hmm. love the idea of the, and the concept of an underdog coming in and facing this greater than life being, uh, even though, and I think what adds a little extra stake, even though it is manufactured is the idea that it is Morimoto's first day. This is proving Why himself. Why is today different? It's pilot writing 101. <laughs> Why Max loves Passover. Uh, <laughs> um, but one of my big things is that, I think that as we follow and maybe one of the things that we haven't talked about that this show does a great job of is it is an educational program in some shape or form. Now, the way they educate us is I think in this episode done a disservice because of the dubbing that has to be done because, uh, we got very familiar with one phrase that was used throughout this entire episode, and it was Fuki-san. Uh, and that was our man on the street trying to interrupt the judges and the panel talking. But at the same time, for an audience in Japan, right, that is watching this for the first time, seeing an ingredient like a bagel being used is something that they're not familiar with. But Max... There's one particular phrase that I think was used about a bagel. Um, do you remember that? Because I think that it was an important fact. Yeah. So when, when Morimoto starts working on uh, the bagels for his dish, snapper soup, New York style with bagel covered in snapper paste, <laughs> uh, the one of the commentators asks, why bagels? And the response is, they're a nice, healthy breakfast item in New York, which good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that rules. I, I love a bit of Jewish lore in, uh, in an all-Japanese cook. Yeah, we were all told show. that bagels were healthy for you growing up. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> They're still true to this day. Oh, my goodness. Well, 
As we got through this episode, it is not just watching these chefs cook, although that is very exciting. And there's some beautiful things that were done, Rich. I think you did such a good job of speaking to just how these red snappers were used because in modern day Iron Chef, there's a lot of chefs that will be like, I don't need to make a dessert. Both of these chefs made desserts. They were wild. Featuring Red Snapper. But at the end of the day, at the end of the hour, we are then presented with all of these dishes. And I took notes of every single one of them. Go for it, Max. Uh, before, before that, when when the odd field guy asks Morimoto, it was your first battle, how did it go? And Morimoto just answers, no. <laughs> 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 Which, <laughs> a, a relatable king. <laughs> uh, so, they didn't let him finish. He was saying, no, boo. So, <laughs> <laughs> so first up, I didn't know that Chef Hiroyama was going for a Christmas Eve theme because he made seven fishes. Uh, from Hiroyama, we got snapper fin sake, grilled red snapper, fried snapper tail with sweet and sour sauce, snapper and wide jelly, head and turnip stew, steamed whole snapper rice, and snapper cracker with ice cream. From Iron Chef yeah. Moriboto, snapper innards braised with miso, snapper with potato chip and yellow sauce, uh, mustard, I don't know, uh, seaweed cured snapper with scallion oil. Snapper soup, New York style, with a bagel covered in snapper paste and big apple jelly. <laughs> yeah, baby. Both of them went with like a gelatinous like dish in the middle, and it was so wild. I cannot that was the that was the one that like really threw me off. I was like, they're they're cooking at like in a completely different stratosphere. So not only uh, one thing that I love about this format is in we get to see the story of the courses and how they're going to be served in this instance with this small snapshot. I have a problem with the tablecloth they used as a backdrop. We can talk about that in a little bit, but <laughs> no, no, the, no. Talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, it, they're do it. <laughs> way too many patterns going on. If I am supposed to, if I've learned anything from having friends who have Instagrams for food or watching too many food Instagrams, you want a very solid background color. No, and then no, because we are lighting. we are now enamored with this like this new Nordic minimalist bullshit from fucking Copenhagen, and that's not how yeah, we used to do things. Not every place is Noma. Every it, it used to be about opulence. Jeff, every single person in this show is wearing a tuxedo from the from the man <laughs> on the field to the the broadcasters. To celebrity guest judge Masumi Okada, a Japanese actor who's wearing some sort of like red tux, looking like he waits tables at Muso and Frank in his spare time out here in Hollywood. This show is about opulence. There needs to be, you know what? There should be more patterns on that tablecloth, not less. Yeah. More. Fuck you and your Nordic bullshit. Six more patterns. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I personally like it when things look like they're trying to obfuscate facial recognition software. Oh my God. So. After well, one thank you for teaching me a little bit about how you both decide to design your homes. Uh, I am Chuck going to get you the. I'm getting you the no flashiest, flashiest um, themed tuxedos that you can ever have to let people know that you're both from California. Uh, um, what ends up happening is that we watch these chefs um, feed 
these judges that we've already been introduced to. Uh, not only do we have our four guest judges, but we also have the chairman who is also eating at this point in time. Here's some key facts. These contestants are judged by each of our judges. The chairman does not get a vote in this situation. Mm. Um, and it is almost treated like a boxing match. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with boxing matches, there's a set number of points that can be given in any round, uh, and that is how things are decided. One of the things that I found a little bit odd, and I'm curious about your two thoughts, is they didn't show all of the dishes being eaten. Like, there was an mm. ice cream dish that we never got to see the judges react to at all. Uh, neither of our jelly dishes were reacted to either. Those were taken off camera. We, we don't need to watch people eat jelly on camera. It's it's a oh, weird no. textural food. <laughs> I, I want to see people eat. If you make a fish jelly, you have to eat the fish jelly on Look. camera. This is Schrodinger's fish jelly. It has to be. <laughs> this is, these are actors. These are artists. These are chefs. They're not trying to embarrass themselves by, oops, some jelly slipped off the spoon. Online here on live TV, I, I I think it's probably just in the interest of time. If I had to guess, unless they can get like a really good reaction out of one of them, because I would love, I mean, I'd love to try those jelly dishes. That is so that is so wild to me. I would absolutely love that. But yeah, I mean, it's really like anything. The edits are going to favor something that's exciting. It's, it's all about who can get the moment that's going to like you know, get your heart rate up. Yeah, you, you could either talk about Snapper for the 11th time over the course of Two Chefs, or you could edit in the quote about Puff Daddy and Chumbawamba. And, you know, we, <laughs> we got to get the tub thumping reference. This episode is from 1998 originally in Japan. <laughs> so after all of this judging, um, we are brought to the judge's decision at the end of the day. Um, would anyone like to announce our winner of this first Max, episode? You got to do the voice. You got to do the voice, Max. Iron Chef Morimoto. Oh, congratulations, Chef. Although, except my boy, Masumi Okada in his red tuxedo gave the vote to the challenger. He went with Morimoto's opponent. Yeah, he was the only one. And then he, um, what I really loved is this was treated almost like a boxing match. At the end of this battle, we heard from each of the judges on why they decided what they decided. And Okada very much said, I'm a traditionalist with my food and I like traditional Japanese food. And if that's a problem, so be it. Um, which I appreciate the honesty because he was, if you looked at the scorecards, it was 1817, 1918, 1718, 1860, 1816. That's super close. He only, super close. Morimoto only won by three points. And that, and that is, makes this so dramatic. That's why this is a great pilot to American audiences. <laughs> so, that, okay. So I have to ask too, because my watching this, I was like, okay, what is really in this for Morimoto? Like, obviously, Nobu is going to become like a, a massive mainstay of. New York, LA, Vegas, a bunch of different places, Chicago, who, who knows where else they, they have them. Um, 
you're being challenged in the same sense that we're like, you know, when Alabama plays Appalachian State for the first game of the year in, in college football, like you're if you're an iron chef, you're expected to win. If you lose, you have way further to fall. Is it like a pride thing? Is it like a marketing thing? Like, why would you do this when it's so much easier to I, I mean, you you are being exposed to a lot more people. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you lose consistently but, well, on I think, it, I like, think it's that, worth that's the high stakes i think it's worth noting though that morimoto's just the chef de cuisine of at the time the original nobu in new york i don't mm. think he has any sort of actual stake the restaurant itself is the brainchild of uh nobu uh matsuhisa and robert de niro mm. although i'm picturing him like bobby d standing <laughs> just... over the sushi <laughs> rice like seasoning it <laughs> I, I'm just imagining Robert De Niro from Taxi in in the in Nobu uh, talking to some of the other chefs, but you know that's a fantasy for another day. But, you but cooking to, for me? But to answer <laughs> yes, to answer your question, what what what's in it for someone to go out there and you know lose? What if you go cold? What if you go on a losing streak? And I I think the the flip side is you have a chance to just like show your prowess on an international level. And if you want to establish yourself as the height of this, then like you go out there and promote. But when I was doing research on this, it turns out there was kind of like some backlash in Japanese culinary circles, like to the people who originally signed on to the show. They thought that it was maybe gimmicky that they were hurting mm. their reputations. And, you know, everyone seemed to get a huge boost from it and those you know who weren't comfortable or didn't enjoy you know they retired and were replaced by other people in their fields but yeah it, it looks like at the end of the day you get such an audience and you get to introduce your cooking to such a global scale that it's it's worth the risk of losing it's almost like the opposite of what, what you described it's almost like the opposite of how the american audience would take it because we're just like ooh, celebrity chef we got to go there you know, this restaurant's on a list. This restaurant is recommended by Instagram, TikTok, Zagas, whatever. It's like that's you're you're relying on your experience only from critics or friends or something like that. Whereas the uh, the Japanese audience like uh, actually kind of derided them a little bit because of it. That's uh, that's very fascinating. I will say I go regularly to a restaurant in my neighborhood that was attended once by a man who has a. <gasps> Are we about to drop a Guy Fieri reference? I, I wasn't going to reference his name directly, but thank you for <laughs> ruining me. <laughs> yeah, the SAG, SAG prohibits us saying the name Guy Fieri. Yeah. Oh, just because he was uh, in. <laughs> Damn it. Is he really? Max, I have to cut that out now, you motherfucker. That's not, that's not endorsing. No one knows the rules. No one knows the rules. <laughs> um, okay. So we have ended our pilot. Um, were there any things that you loved about this pilot that maybe we didn't discuss while we were discussing the episode? I'm always unprepared for this question every week. <laughs> and you know it's coming every episode. Uh, every week? For me, it's it's just the opulence and the decadence of it all that everything feels elevated and escalated and put on a pedestal and you know the the french quotes are cheesy the outfits that have like the garnishes and embellishments are 
cheesy and kind of tacky, but it makes the whole thing fun. Like it, it's it's competitive, but it's entertaining. It's not dark. It's not self serious. Like the work they're doing is obviously very serious. They take their craft seriously, but everyone seems to be having fun. Also, musical yeah. theater. <laughs> God damn it, Rich. What about you? Uh, uh... I mean, I'll, I'll go back to it again, but and and I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit more on this. But like a, the a majority of the way that we find recipes that things are are uh, are just created and passed down through generations is a dance of basically scarcity and abundance and time. And really, like this shows the human brain and creative muscle behind like creating a recipe so well you really get to see how someone how you're going to like everything gets boiled down to like how someone cuts into a fish just to like fillet it or butcher it or you know uh take the head off for broth or something like that it really is just like it is the human experience and connection to cooking in 45 minutes which is like i, I don't know it's super impressive I love watching people with this type of skill. Uh, it's what, uh, you know, my, my grandmother learned how to cook during the depression. Like, this is like what you do. It's like, you have the ingredients that you're given and you better make something with it. Cause otherwise you have no other option. And that is really like, I, I think the human brain just shine, just shines creatively like that. And it's really unique to watch it in like in a TV or in a TV show format. Yeah, I I would absolutely agree with you, Rich. I think that there is a very, in the culture that we live in, where food is very much abundantly available in many different formats, there is a beauty of seeing how a beautiful meal is made. Because I think that there is a disconnect for a lot of people of, oh, I sit down in a restaurant, I look at the menu, I see the thing I want, that thing appears uh, without mm -hmm. thinking of the chef that's behind it, the ingredients that yeah. are behind it, all of those things and the story and the emotion uh, and the craft, just because it's food does not mean it's not art in some circumstances. Yeah. And sometimes food is just food. I, I want to be very clear. Sometimes, you know, when you're at McDonald's and you just want a Big Mac, that Big Mac was made by someone who should be making more money per hour. Uh, but it's a Big Mac. And that's and it's an sure. emotional connection. But I think what I also love about this show is it does put so many different components together, right? We get that emotional component. We get that educational component. The moments of comedy are just genuine. They were not workshopped by a group of writers in a room. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, we have suspense that is natural from a competition. Uh, there is that they constantly reference to kitchen stadium being like a sport and it is in that sense. And the reward is pride in your craft at the end yeah. of the day. That is like, and, and there, I mean, to add to that too, there is now, there are now entire industries based on preserving and freezing produce. So we can have that like regularly all year round. Like there's no reason we should have oranges in January, but we do because of freezing and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it, 
it is it brings like a I'm going down to the market. Here's what's available. Here's here's what's fresh. This is what I'm making feel to it. And and I, I think you said that very well, Jeff. So we talked about things that we loved. Um, and I love hearing about things we love. But were there any wait a minute moments behind this show? that we talked so eloquently about um the fact that they dress the uh iron chef Ital uh, italy guy like the dude on the pizza box uh <laughs> that was a that was a little uh that was a little strange <laughs> was it not max what about you oh man i i mean i think it's my favorite part but it's also my my wait a minute, which is just the opulence of it all. When you cut to a guy standing in the middle of a kitchen, holding a microphone, wearing like a rental opera tuxedo, like putting a mic in a guy's face in like kitchen whites, who's covered in sweat. It's, it's very jarring. And it's like, what makes the show fascinating and unique is also the thing that's just like, what am I watching? What's going on here? Um, I do also kind of want to know, how many of the dubbed lines are like American jokes? Like, do they call mm. him the Andy Warhol of Japanese cuisine? Or is that just like, we're looking for a joke in here or is like an older reference that won't translate to America? I don't know. I, I was kind of wondering like, does this dude really know who Chumbawamba is? Like, is he really name dropping <laughs> Chumbawamba right now? Or were they just like looking for who's got a top 10 hit right now? That'll be a timely reference. This is why timely sure. pop culture references are dangerous because they don't always age great. <laughs> also, like, isn't it supposed to be way louder in that kitchen? Shouldn't it be like extremely loud in that kitchen? There, they should be like yelling at each other. It's like the bear, right? It takes it takes seventeen people all screaming at each other to make one Italian beef sandwich. That's I, what the bear is. I want to give credit to the sound engineers because they did God's work for us not going <laughs> deaf uh, during this episode. That is another thing that I loved. Uh, but a wait a minute moment for me. We talked a little bit about the outfits. Those looked extremely flammable, and I'm very worried if, <laughs> if anything goes partially wrong, we might need a new Iron Chef. Um, Chef. <laughs> but uh, with that said, that is not our last question. We also have an in-flight question. Um, our in-flight question this week came from Instagram, and their question was, where are the judges and the chefs now? So, Max, you did a little bit of research on this, so I'm going to pass it off to you. Yeah, I dug into the backgrounds of all four Iron Chefs who we see on today's episode, uh, all four from the American premiere of Iron Chef. And so Iron Chef Japanese, Masahiro Morimoto, would go on to maintain Iron Chef status on Iron Chef America, also on Food Network. He currently operates 19 restaurants worldwide, along with a wine label, uh, and it's probably the only person from this show whose food you could also get at airports. Um, Iron Chef <laughs> French, Hiroyuku Sakai, owns the chain of La Rochelle restaurants across Japan and received an award from the French government in 2005 in recognition of his culinary prowess and contribute to French cuisine. The other two, cool. unfortunately, are a little less happy. Iron Chef Italian Masahiko Kobe, the Prince of Pasta, an owner of Ristorante Massa tragically passed away at just 49 years old after a fall in the kitchen at one of his restaurants. Oh, uh, and Iron Chef terrible. Chinese Chen Kenichi, 
the Szechuan Sage, as he was nicknamed, the only Iron Chef who stayed on for the entire duration of this series, was a prolific restaurateur and cookbook author with 14 restaurants currently operated by his son. Uh, Chef Chen Kenichi, unfortunately, did pass away earlier this year in March of 23 from lung disease. Oh, well, rest in peace to those who have passed and to those that are still with us. Uh, let's make sure that we honor them and make sure that we celebrate them for That's a right. really if awesome you're listening legacy. To this, you have one hour to cook a, a dish for all of us. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, well, Max, thank you for that re extra bit of research you did. And of course. to our passenger, thanks for that in-flight question to our other passengers. We'll talk a little bit more about how to submit those later in the episode. Um, who's ready for a history lesson? Because I did a bunch of research Ooh, as well. Um, this version of Iron Chef had seven seasons and 295 different episodes. Uh, that wow. is a lot of different secret ingredients. And I challenge Damn. someone at home, just grab a piece of paper and write down a single ingredient on a line. Just go. I, I'll even give you flour. Flour can be a secret ingredient. And let's see how far you get, because I can't even get to 295. Um, as we saw on the show, there were three chefs, but over the co course of the entirety of the show, there were a total of seven chefs who were given that title of Iron Chef. The one chef that was switched out the most, or the specialty that was switched out the most, was Iron Chef Japan. Uh, which there were a total of three different chefs who had that title. There were two chefs who had the title of Iron Chef French. Um, with that being said, we said we were going to talk about statistics. Let's talk about the winning percentage of the Iron Chefs Ooh. in total. Yeah, uh, give if us you were, the tape. If you were to go <laughs> into Kitchen Stadium, there is a 78% chance that you are losing in Kitchen Stadium. So 22% of the time you are either losing or in a few rare instances, there were draws uh, because the chefs were tied um, based wow. off of the overall scoring. They ended up doing multiple specials after the show was done and did a Iron Chef All-Star charity dinner as well in Australia uh, that raised a really good amount of money. Uh, I would have killed to have a seat at one of those tables because it probably Truly. was a bash. Uh, the show was deemed a hit in the U.S., but it was also syndicated a lot of different places internationally, including Australia, Canada, Sweden, Finland, London, and Brazil. Uh, the show was actually more recently revived. Uh, I believe it was in 2012. There were two seasons. There were only 14 episodes. Uh, it was three brand new chefs, but the success rate was actually a lot lower. Um, I think that probably has something to do with the fact that they didn't have as many episodes to cook and build up and, you know, pack those stats. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Iron Chef America uh, with the original version uh, actually being hosted by William Shatner in 2001. And well, we should the, distinguish. There's, I, there's Iron yeah. Chef USA, which did not air on Food Network. That was very short. It was on USA and then, Network. And then, and then Iron then... Chef America, which most people commonly knew. And they, they claimed that the, the chairman of that one was the nephew 
of the chairman from Iron Chef. They made a whole elaborate backstory. And he wasn't? No, no. The guy's also no. an actor. Oh. He plays the villain in a very popular movie <laughs> from a couple of years ago that Jeff's going to be mad if I say on the air. So just look it up. But it's very funny. <laughs> he also plays the villain in a lot of other things. Uh, and you can definitely find him on those things. Um, I do want to talk about Bobby Flay. Uh, now, Bobby Flay was one of the chefs who appeared on Iron Chef Japan uh, when they did Battle of New York. Uh, in that episode, he faced uh, Morimoto. Um, this was the first of three different instances where they faced each other. Uh, but in this episode, he got electrocuted and complained about the safety of the kitchen, uh, which, you know what? You know what your reward for getting, I get that. <laughs> you know what your reward for getting electrocuted is? You become an Iron Chef on Iron Chef America. Uh, oh, that's how he got his powers. <laughs> yeah, that's how he got. <laughs> that's how you beat Bobby Flay. You electrocute him. Yeah, see, Iron doesn't conduct electricity, so all of that was stored <laughs> in his brain. <laughs> um, so that's not true. Please do not take that. Wait, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Please do not take that as as medical advice. So, um. Just a, one last thing. There are America is not the only place you can find a alternative to this beloved show. Uh, you can also find it in Israel, England, Australia, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Canada, Brazil, and finally Mexico. Uh, there is a newer version of this show that you could potentially find on a streaming platform. We're not going to name that platform today, but if hey. you were that platform <laughs> but if you are looking for the show it is available plenty of places uh, as max talked about at the beginning of the episode the episode is red yeah. snapper and you can Bang just it. look up iron chef red snapper with that being said rich what is your game of the week all right. So uh, as Max alluded to earlier, uh, this uh, the popularity of this show spawned a ton of different reality cooking uh, competition shows. A ton. Now, this wasn't the first re uh, like cooking competition show. The first one uh, debuted in around the 50s or 60s. Um, I do not recall the name of that one. I will look it up later, and that will be for no one but me. Beat Julia um, Child. <laughs> <laughs> I that that woman had three wines before every episode. I would watch the absolute shit out of that. I'm Julia um, Child. <laughs> I can I'm I, gonna beat your ass. Can I do a quick story really quickly that I like? We're, you want to do a Julia Child long. story? Yeah, I do. So, um, fun fact about Julia Child is my grandmother, rest her soul, was pen pals with Julia Child. Uh, what? Yeah. So they were like. They would write to each other. They met each other a few different times. And when my grandmother was in her 20s, she wrote Julia Child and was like, hey, I'd love to come and visit you and just like take a weekend and learn how to cook from you because you're just you're so good at it. And I want to learn from you. And Julia Child said, I'm busy as shit. That's not happening. <laughs> but you know, you know what story. is happening? Is I'm going to send you to this oh, man, goodness. this small man who is really good at cooking as well. Um, do you two gentlemen want to guess? This is my game of the week. Who taught my grandmother how to cook? 
who is a historic Vern. figure within U.S. cooking. Vern Troyer. Max. Dom DeLuise. <laughs> James Beard. James Beard oh, personally no taught my grandmother what? how to cook. Uh, and I will say she was one of the best cooks in my family. God bless her. She taught... One of? Yeah. She, my, on the other side, there's something about uh, my Polish grandmother who was just a demon in the kitchen. She could destroy. Wow. But yeah. Wow. Uh, just a quick thing about cooking that I absolutely love. And the more you know. Um, with that said, though, Rich, go back into your store, <laughs> into your game of the week. <laughs> Oh man. So I want you guys, I, I pulled a couple of, uh, uh, some flops of, uh, of cooking competition shows, ones that only lasted about one season or maybe even less. Um, and I want you guys to tell me which, uh, uh if this show is fake or not. Uh, the first one I have is candy crunch in a one V one challenge. Confectioners have 30 minutes to make a bag of candy for celebrity judges, all unique ingredients. Was that real or is it fake? I'm just thinking of the the video game that has a very similar <laughs> name. Real. So so is this like a like a what what's the candy store in New York that people would go to and lose? Dylan's. Is it like yeah? Is it like Willy, a Di Willy Wonka's? It, it's like Dylan's. The M and M like, store. Dil the M and M <laughs> store. The movie. Um, so please don't wish that evil on us. Um, I'm going to say this is a hundred percent real. Uh, I made that one up. All right. Number two, <laughs> rat in the kitchen, combining the mole and chopped. This show made chefs compete in cooking challenges while also figuring out who was sabotaging dishes. This is a hundred percent real. I've watched an episode of this show. <laughs> you watched this show. <laughs> yeah. I no. could not believe. Yeah. This is, this is, this is real. I, I, I have seen this one as well. I cannot believe this is real when I looked it up on a list. <laughs> There's <laughs> only one rat in the kitchen that I want to see, and I can't mention him right now because Jeff will get mad at me. <laughs> Untitled cartoon rat I'm cooking project. I'm a big fan of Patton Oswald. I'll just say that. <laughs> it's called Tiny Chef. All right. Uh, family food fight. Essentially family feud with cooking teams of family cooks play against one another to crown one clan as champion show me real <laughs> i yeah what do you I, think jeff that sounds very real to me that one is real all right can you stand the heat it's a cooking competition show and dating reality show all mixed into one 12 chefs uh, 12 chefs 12 jeffs enter looking for love and a signature dish so this is like, Max, this is more into your territory because this reminds me of almost like when The Bachelor did the songwriters that also dated. Um, Max, are you researching something right now? No. Are you reading something? <laughs> I was trying. It's not It's not this, but so I, I was just in England and there was a, a show on, on TV that was called like Blind Dinner Date, which it was like a British reality show where they had like three dudes try to impress uh, a potential suitor to go on a blind date with. And she had to pick based on whose dishes she liked the most. I was trying to remember the British series name. Oh man. That's so fun. That sounds fantastic. 
Max, what so you guess? Gonna, was. So I'm going to say real because it sounds like this British show that I remembered watching a few weeks ago. <laughs> I could see this. I I could 100 percent see this on like USA Network. I also made this one up. It is entirely fake. Rich, but you didn't are... make up blind dinner date. <laughs> I sure didn't. I sure. I, it turns out I could just get a bunch of shit greenlit in the UK. So I gotta. I'm gonna go and record. Yeah, it's hilarious there. that your fake show here is a real show elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, even when I was writing this one, I was like, "This seems a little too stupid." I bet they're gonna figure this one out pretty fast. <laughs> Who the Brits? Because <laughs> I was also. Because I was also trying to figure out, like, if, if so, if the person that they were, if the, they were crushing on also got eliminated, are they also gone? I'm like, I'm trying to figure out the machinations of this game, and it's almost impossible. Yeah, spoiler alert: they had nothing to talk about when they went on the date. It was like, <laughs> oh, you made me that that omelet, thank you. <laughs> you made me that omelet. Well, Rich, thank you for uh, that very enlightening game of the week. <laughs> If you, uh, I'm just getting more creative by the week. So powerful. So our plane <laughs> is coming to a land, and I have two more questions for each of you gentlemen. Uh, one is, based off of the pilot, would you continue watching this version of Iron Chef, given that there are a variety of reboots that have been done and all of that stuff? And my second question is, do you think that there is a place for all of these reboots of the show that currently exists? Max, looks like you have an answer. Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one first. Am I going to keep watching this? Absolutely. Now that I'm aware of how much of it is just out there for my consumption, 100%. I, I know from like a little bit that there's like, there's actual arcs to Iron Chef at points. There There's like, masters who battle their own students there's rematches and grudge matches and rivalries that forms apparently things where like the uh, chairman kaga gets angry when his iron chefs lose a few episodes in a row and he goes out to like you know find the ultimate challenger because he's so bad at his chefs like there's there's storytelling here and it's bonkers and nothing else on tv encapsulates that as for bringing it back i mean it feels like there's diminishing returns you even i don't even know if you mentioned jeff but there's like another yeah there's another version that premiered yeah. like a year ago somewhere and had no cultural impact there's been other things like final table which are like international iron chef ripoffs from other streamers that also like don't have any cultural impact and i think the market's just oversaturated now i don't think that there's the same enthusiasm for culinary competition maybe uh top chef aside and i don't think you could get an american audience to buy into the camp that makes this version what it is this is for me just perfect 90s nostalgia and i'm going to choose to leave it at that rich what about you that's such a great point. I, 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 it was hard not to try to jump in and uh, agree with uh, basically every point of that. Like I, I love, I loved watching the creativity of this. I loved the flair. Like Max said, there's so many different ways that they're going to take the show. Um, but again, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's at a certain point it becomes filler TV. It's something that they're going to air at 2 p.m. on a Thursday on Food Network or Bravo or whatever the hell. Um, and and really, it's like it's kind of a, I've always treated cooking shows 
number one is a way to try to like pick up a couple techniques or something like that. Number two, um, just as kind of like a, I'm going to turn my brain off and watch people make some amazing stuff, possibly while very stoned and, uh, and get really hungry from it. Uh, the, my primary reaction to any cooking competition show is, Oh, I wish I was in that room right now. I bet it smells amazing in there. <laughs> and, <laughs> But like, like you said, it's, uh, <laughs> but again, it's like, it, it definitely has a diminishing return. That is, uh, you know, I, I think the shows that really go above and beyond with different types of formatting, like um, Cutthroat Kitchen was one that kind of came out of the woodwork that felt really fun. Um, I love Alton Brown. Also, uh, I was going to bring up Final Table, too. I really enjoyed Final Table, even though, like, yeah, it just kind of didn't really go anywhere. Netflix just, like, let it drop off the face of the earth. And, it, it, you know, I don't think anything more needs to be done in the Iron Chef sphere unless you're going crazy uh, historical battles or, like, you know... Or, or you're adding a bunch of obstacles or something like that. There has to be something that's way out of left field for me to try to tune in again. But am I watching more of this original series? Absolutely. I would love to see how uh, how people in Japan uh, interpret the challenges in a different way from the people in the U.S. that I'm used to watching. And I, I think it's just like it's a more fascinating mindset to get into. But yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more with Max's answer. I want to know more about your Iron Chef sphere. It sounds mysterious. Mm. Like an orb. <laughs> is it, like a, is like it a anything like, You enter the battle dome. Is it anything like the Las Vegas sphere that <laughs> that's just a gigantic? Yeah. They're you all know, trapped in you there. Yeah, there should not be a multi-story sphere with a blinking eyeball on it. There, There's people who are on drugs coming out of nightclubs on that street. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the it's the Iron Chef Battle Dome. If you lose, guess what next the next secret ingredient is? It's Steve. Oh my god. <laughs> so let me round us out. Um <laughs> Max Max just did the if you want to watch Max do the the exact the the elaborate uh Iron Chef uh gesture, uh tune into our channel on YouTube. Um as far as this show goes, I think that based off of the pilot, I really love this version of the show. I think it is why I love a lot of things from, you know, older TV where it doesn't take itself too seriously. It doesn't need to be prestige reality TV. It is literally just about the food and people are having fun. With that being said, as far as rebooting this, I think we've all made some really good points. There's too many cooks in the kitchen as far as food <laughs> TV shows go. Um, they are bringing back Hell's Kitchen, I just found out. And I legitimately saw an ad and said, why? Um, I yeah. think that it's very much... A thing of there are audiences for these shows, right? There is an entire network that is dedicated to consuming and learning about recipes and all of that stuff. And maybe, just maybe, this show or future iterations of it should just stay on that network. Rich, you made a really good point at the beginning, and I don't think you were intending to, but 
when I watch the Give most... Give some credit. I, I love this. I love this. When I watch... It's, it's almost midnight for Jeff. He's just going to fucking torch me right now. When I watched the most of this show was when I was in college, right? When mm-hmm. I had terrible sleeping habits. And it was 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening. And I wanted to see my boy Alton B. Uh, show me what the special ingredient was. And then talk down to me about how he knew everything about that special ingredient. Um, I'm not in that place anymore. I think there are people who probably are in that place, who want to learn everything about food, who want to watch these chefs make things in a highly curated fashion. But in all honesty, I think that there's reasons that certain scripted shows about cooking are picking up in popularity. And we are also seeing, you know, behemoths within the space start to make small changes such as top chef uh changing its host and also seeing changes with things like chopped where there's like the 30th iteration of that show as well so does this belong on tv maybe um (laughs) will will someone do it probably uh will i be watching I don't know. Um, I love our the horrors of capitalism answer to, to this part of the question. <laughs> Is someone going to make it? Someone's going to make a, uh, something about anything. Let's do it. <laughs> Nothing uh, matters. With, with that being said, <laughs> uh, our plane has come to a land. Um, but before we depart, where can we find you two gentlemen? Rich, where can we find you? Uh, you can catch me combining fish and ice cream at my freezer, and then you can also catch me on Instagram at Damn That's Rich. Uh, you can catch me enjoying a nice, healthy New York bagel and on all social media platforms at Maxwell Sig. And you can find me <laughs> drinking a Coca Cola like a New Yorker. How <laughs> you unique! Can also, <laughs> you can also find me uh, at Run Jeff Run on Instagram, Twitter, and Threads. You can find the TV Pilots License on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Threads. Uh, do we call Twitter X now? Who the fuck no, knows? No, uh, no, <laughs> no, no. We're, we're well, dead naming Twitter. Speaking you, of the depressing you, capitalist part of the show. <laughs> you can find the TV Pilots License on almost every social media channel, as well as almost anywhere you listen to your podcast. At Catch TV us on all Pilots recipes. <laughs> If you have a question about the show or for our next episode, you can email us at tvpilotslicense at gmail.com. Give us a call at 213-290-1713 or just slide into our DMs. We're always so excited to hear your suggestions and we can't wait for the next one. Uh, Jeff doesn't sleep at all. He'll answer your DMs at 3 in the morning. Test him. Just do it. Just test him right now. Make sure to watch out for uh, uh, announcements about our upcoming episodes that we have. Uh, But with the plane landed and the seatbelt sign off, we look forward to flying the bright skies of the TV world with you again soon. And until then, a la cuisine. A la cuisine. A la cuisine.